Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenahan, and in this episode, made to mark World Social Work Day 2023, my guests and I will discuss the role of social work in deeply divided societies. Social work is practiced under situations of armed conflict and in deeply divided post-conflict societies in many regions and countries across the world. What we're not going to do today is to list all of those areas, but instead focus on two examples. At the end of the episode, we'll have a moment of solidarity to recognise all those social workers who practice in situations of armed conflict. Taking the examples of Bosnia, Herzegovina and Northern Ireland, we're going to examine how social workers have adapted to deliver services amid situations of political violence and discuss the role of social work in post-conflict societies. As ever, the views expressed today are those of the participants and not necessarily the views of Baswa. With me to discuss these issues, which I find fascinating and challenging in equal measure, are Dr. Rhea Maglidic, Reader in Social Work at the University of Sussex, Jim Campbell, Emeritus Full Professor of Social Work at University College Dublin, and Janet Walker, Professor of International Social Work at the University of Lincoln and Chair of the British Association of Social Workers International Committee. Welcome Jim, welcome Rhea, welcome Janet. It's great to have you on Let's Talk Social Work. How are you all doing? Let's go around the screen first. Jim, how are you? I'm fine, Andy. Um, great to be here and really thanks to you and Baswa for um, having the podcast. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about such a wonderful and important and difficult uh, topic, that of social work and um, political conflict. It's a, it's an area of interest I've had for maybe 30 years and it's complex and difficult. And we hope that um, our discussion today will bring some light, but also some questions to the topic. I should say that, as you said in your introduction, that really I'm talking from my own perspective and everyone will have a different lens through which they view both social work and political conflict and those relationships. And I hope that that is made clear in the way I talk about the issues of Northern Ireland and other parts of the world. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you. Rhea, welcome. Listen, despite our pre-interview chat, I fear I did pronounce your uh, surname incorrectly. Uh, you did a really good job. Uh, <laughs> but it is, my full name is Rema Anna Maglajlic to reflect all these many identities I carry as somebody who is Bosnian, Serbian and Croatian in equal measure. Well, welcome to Let's Talk So Short. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say about your experience, your research and uh, your experience of growing up in. Sorry, go ahead. It's wonderful, actually, I have to say this, although Jim always resents me or gets very coy and shy when I say this. It's so wonderful to be with all of you today, but particularly with Jim, who really got me passionate about this topic in a meeting where I first met him that he organised in Belfast 23 years ago which was the first chance for me to be with other social workers from Northern Ireland and at that time Palestine and Israel and myself representing kind of several countries in former Yugoslavia and um, somebody who really initiated this kind of initiative to join up people and social workers from conflict-affected societies together. 
Thank you, Ray. And just thinking, 23 years ago, I was 17. It wasn't that, that, sorry, it wasn't that far before I studied politics in Queens and Belfast. And I remember in my third year doing a module on the politics of deeply divided societies and mm-hmm. writing essays about um, the Bosnian conflict. So oh, that, wow. that feels like a long, I mean, it is a long time ago. It, is a long um, time. it, was, it was undergrad <laughs> level. I'm looking to, I'm really looking forward to hearing some expert um, uh, views um, and opinions um, from yourself. Janet, last but not least, very definitely not least welcome how are you doing i'm doing well thank you yes and very pleased to be amongst such eminent company thank you for inviting me you are welcome so let's get started because we've got an awful lot to cover Rhea and jim i think it'll be really helpful at the start if you could set the scene by starting us off by giving a brief overview of the conflicts in northern ireland and bosnia herzegovina i'm thinking about you know when each conflict began and ended and the nature of the conflict Obviously, keeping it high level and Jim recognising what you were saying at the start, that I suppose to paraphrase, there is no history, there are histories. Um, Mm. Yes, indeed, Uh, Andy, there are many histories and theories about the conflict in Northern Ireland. And these histories are often determined by by sort of the the events, how the events are viewed politically and personally. So, for example, I grew up in the middle of the Troubles, I'm that age, I was an adolescent at the time whenever things were really most violent in Northern Ireland. So, And I come from a particular community, so the way I view the world is shaped by that and my socialisation and the way I was educated. And I studied politics at Queen's as well, Andy. So Did you? You're, we're in good company, wow, I'll tell you, you about that another time. Sure. Anyway, the, the idea is about the, uh, the origins of the conflict of in Northern Ireland are, of course, contested. Uh, there's some, you know, uh, there's a fair, but there is a fair consensus that it, the origins are part of a colonial process framed in terms of the plantation of Ulster by Britain, which started in the 16th century. And these laid the foundations for the current conflict and the social, political and ethnic divisions. Now, these divisions have been characterised by a conflict of religions, particularly Protestant and Catholic. But as we look at the literature, we know it's about much more than this. Issues of class, culture and political identities are important to recognise, of course. So getting us a few centuries later, importantly, the current conflict has its origins in the complex events that led to the partition of Ireland in 1921. After that partition, Northern Ireland remained part of the United Kingdom and Southern Ireland eventually became an independent republic. And we can trace the history of the current conflict back to this particular moment in Irish history and British history for that matter. What happened was the Northern Ireland state from the start was characterised by sectarian conflict between the small majority of Protestants or Unionists and a large minority of nationalist, nationalists who lived in a state, which many, that, who, many of which felt that this was not their state. Um, the oppressive nature of the state and the intermittent campaigns by the IRA, a Republican group, and the failure of the British state to address mostly uh, Catholic grievances about discrimination culminated in what we now know as the Troubles. People around the world and in Britain call it now the Troubles, a euphemism, which is an odd euphemism. And Jim, just on that, 
you know, some will regard it as a war. Some will regard it as political violence. That is kind of why the Troubles euphemism came about. It's a kind of a term that can be agreed on in that we lived through three decades of trouble, regardless of the, the reason it came about. Yeah. That's that's very that's a good point, Andy. And in in Northern Ireland, as as you know and I know, the language is so important to try and find ways of understanding what happened. I think we I like the term political conflict because it addresses a range of different experiences, incidences, and types of behaviours that can capture the variety of horrible things that happened to us in Northern Ireland. So rather than political violence, political conflict and the troubles helps us expand our ideas about what happened. Jim, thanks. That's a really, really helpful overview of the situation in Northern Ireland. It's one that sounds, you know, it's so familiar to me. I forget that for many people in the UK, I mean, Northern Ireland is a contested region. Many people will regard it as legitimately part of Ireland, others legitimately part of the United Kingdom. But for jurisdictionally, we are part of the United Kingdom. And I am always kind of aware of how often we are little understood by colleagues in England, Scotland and Wales. Um, you know, this was part of the UK where there was 30 years of conflict. And we're going to get into more about what practice like was like in that context. But I want to hand over to Rhea um, before we do anything else um, to talk about the nature of the, the Bosnian conflict. Thank you. Much like Jim mentioned, I think that there are as many answers to that question as there are people who were affected by it. And um, very narrowly defined, internationally influenced and imposed understandings which kind of get repeated. However, I will try to give you something which is as much influenced by myself as somebody who has ethnically diverse background and was born and raised as an ethnic uh, minority of the country of my birth, which is actually Croatia rather than Bosnia and Herzegovina, to a Bosnian father and a Croatian Serb mother. And the war itself in Bosnia and Herzegovina is one in the series of uh, the wars that happened in the breakup of former Socialist uh, Republic of Yugoslavia, what country that was formed uh, after World War II, and country um, that was shaped because of uh, the fact that that part of the world was fr freed itself from the Nazi invasion in, during World War II, and we created a self-governing socialist state which wasn't part of uh, and behind Iron Curtain. However, in the breakup of that state, which happened following uh, slowly throughout the 80s, following the death of uh, Marshal Tito, who uh, was the um, president of the country for uh, throughout that post-World War II period um, and kind of intensification of ethnic conflict, which wasn't really properly dealt with during the, in the uh, aftermath of World War II, where ethnic tensions existed even during the World War II and then were suppressed in that post-war period for many people, uh, in the spirit of so-called brotherhood and unity, which existed in the country. And at the very end of the 80s and then in, throughout the 90s, this kind of um, uh, periods of violence and violent incidents that happened throughout, throughout the former Yugoslavia, the six states which formed uh, former Yugoslavia, this led to political conflict. And I agree with Jim that that is a good term to describe it. In Bosnia, it's a governor, started on six, it's, commonly seen to have st having started on the 6th of April 1992, 
following a number of other violent incidents and ending on 14th of December 1995 when the Dayton Peace Accords were signed. And the country at that point was um, divided and united into uh, a range of different administrative units from the country level down, which we can talk about it um, about later. The way the conflict is described in Bosnia, it was quite messy. So the first conflict started in Croatia in 91. It then ha- happened in Bosnia, spread to Bosnia and continued right into the ni- uh, uh, until wrapping up in 95. However, this was followed on, for example, by violent conflict in Kosovo, which led also to international involvement there. And also there were conflicts in um uh, uh, a former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Uh, and it, we have a euphemism similar to the Troubles that is sometimes used to describe Bosnian conflict, which I can roughly, it's namely Dogaja in Bosnia, which means roughly an unfortunate event. It is an understatement, if you could ever make an yeah. understatement. And much like in, in Northern Ireland, when people try to identify, there are different ethnic groups and there are different, uh, each one of which may have... Um, uh, its own religion, although in post-war Bosnia, the most, apart from Catholics and um, Muslims, which are Bosniaks, Catholics, which are Croats most commonly, and uh, uh, Orthodox uh, Christians, uh, uh, which are Serbs, the most common uh, um, religious group is Jedi in any Jedi. <laughs> census. <laughs> you see, if that was Northern Ireland, you'd be asked, are you, are you a Protestant Jedi or a Catholic Jedi, wouldn't you, Jen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, yeah, probably. Oh, yes. Yeah, very much so. And the reason why I have, I use both of my names, Reima and Anna, that, that kind of uh, Bosniaks so go, oh, Reima, you're one of us. And I'm Reima, Anna. And then Croats and Serbs go, oh, Anna, you're one of us. It's like, well, yeah, right? but I'm also Reima Is that too. right? Because, I mean, yeah. Jim Campbell, I would have a notion of Jim's background from his name. I could have it wrong. Yeah. Andy McLenahan, yeah. most people would have a notion yeah. of my name. But Jim, just yeah. to put this to you, my middle name is James. If I was James yeah. McLenahan, I think you would probably have a different notion of my yeah, background. Yeah. Um, funny, I have a neutral name that people struggle with. And I used to play that game with my students or students in is universities right? to ask them, what do you think I am? You know, because yes. your name is, mm. is a real identifier of ethnic, uh, cultural mm. identity in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So, and Jim, but you, if, you, if you're yes. asking that question in Dublin, you are one yeah. thing and you're a Northerner. Yeah, Northerner, yeah. which, which uh, it trumps yeah. everything. But Andy, yeah. I'm assuming, is a pro- Protestant, but the James might yes. throw, throw us. Yeah. yeah, and McLenaghan is kind of both, yeah. Yeah, and it's the same in our neck of woods. I mean, I grew up in a culture, you know, British people frequently apologise for not pronouncing my name correctly. Nobody in the country of my birth could pronounce my surname. <laughs> and I remember moving to Bosnia and spending time in Bosnia for the first time and again going in, in you know, M-A-G, L-A-J equivalent in my mother tongue. And they went, Maguilich, what's the problem? <laughs> you know, and I went, finally, you yes. know. And, and, and working with refugees equally, in Croatia at first, and and them going, you're one of us, just by seeing mm-hmm. me, because for our names and how we look, um, we can see each other or not see each other in other people, and that is, um, and that's, and it also very importantly, just to mention, in Bosnia Herzegovina, much like in Northern Ireland, it has colonial influences just as much, although not quite of the same quality in terms of influences of. Uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and Ottoman Empire and their influence over centuries prior to the conflict. Could you say something about the identity issue, which is, I think we're alluding to it now, and it's not so much 
who you think you are, it's how others view you. Mm. And this can be the source of a Gosh, lot of yes. the issues, the, the complex nature of political conflicts Absolutely. and social work identities as well. Jim, Rhea, thank you so much. Janet, you are observing this conversation at the moment. You're not participating. So, and I'm kind of conscious that just that, even as a metaphor for this, Jim and I, Jim is, has a few years on me, but we, Jim grew up uh, during the Troubles. I grew up at the tail end of the Troubles. Rhea is from the former Yugoslavia. Um, in terms of this conversation, your perspective on it, kind of as an outsider looking in, it is your academic background, but your views in terms of how... Um, post-conflict societies, deeply divided societies are regarded by um, social workers um, in GB. Are these issues, are they on the radar of social workers in general, do you think? I think that's quite a difficult question to answer. I mean, what I would say is I'm a, I was, my teenage years were in the 70s. So my personal recollection of exactly what you two are talking about is the images and the expression of, uh, of those images for me. But we are, of course, now in a social media world where it is more apparent. I So I think it is there more visibly because it's so instant very often for people. But whether it's understood in the way that is being expressed here is much more complex and much more difficult. As these two people have reflected, it, it's a bit of a history and it's it's a continual history and there are many different dimensions to this. And there are people who might be described as victims, people as perpetrators. So it's very complex. But that's what makes it really important to understand it. Because whilst it may not be kind of something in our everyday experience as social workers, the lessons and that narrative is so important in trying to make sense of the impacts on people's lives and how we can move those things forward. Because our role as social workers, of course, is to work with individuals, but it's the wider issues as well and the consequences of that. We see that, as you, as you said, Andy, in the everyday narratives of the way that refugees are being kind of treated. Mm. And it's really important that we understand the past in order to stand the present and to work for the future. We've a lot still to talk about in relation to the particular issues in Northern Ireland, uh, historic and current, and in Bosnia-Herzegovina. But before we do that, I do want to kind of continue to focus on the UK. So if you think of the UK and also the USA, actually, you know, they are stable democracies, but in many, many ways, they are deeply polarised. They're not divided in the way that we've been discussing about Northern Ireland and the former Yugoslavia. But, you know, if you take the toxicity of the Brexit debate, for example, or opinions concerning trans rights, you know, what I'm keen to know, Janet, are your views on whether social work has a role to play in seeking to bring understanding and mutual respect to contentious issues. So even when people disagree fundamentally, does social work have a role in helping us to disagree well? Um, my simple answer to that is yes, we do. I think it's fundamental. For me, it's very caught up in our um, values and our knowledge and our professionalism, particularly with our call for social justice. And I think that's the kind of critical issue that sits alongside that. And really understanding that social justice doesn't have one face and that it's not black or white. There are many shades of grey in between that. And as social workers, that is what we kind of consciously need to continually unpick and think about. And in fact, what makes our role really important in kind of 
presenting those different discourses. And we, whilst we may not personally agree with them, it is important to kind of face up to the realities of people's experience, whether they be seen as the kind of people who are the victims or indeed the kind of perpetrators of some of these issues that are there. So I suppose my answer is when we work with people, we need to kind of create that space um, that we allow people to kind of unpick, debate and grapple and reframe what it means for them as individuals, but for us as a social work, as a social worker, but as a social work community, uh, rather than necessarily claim we have the answers, because I don't think that we do have the answers. And that's been very much represented in what Jim and Maria are saying. There, there are distinctly kind of shades of grey within this. Um, there's an organisation called the Forgiveness Project, which people may know about, which talks about the importance of people's personal journeys and um, examining their grievances and come to their own answers as a kind of restorative narrative too. And I think we have to position ourselves within that. And sometimes that means we have to li listen to some difficult conversations, which we may not agree with. And that's the personal challenge, isn't it, Janet? Because yeah. there will be issues, you know, Brexit or um, issues around uh, trans rights that social workers will have very strong views on themselves. And I suppose then the challenge is how do you stay true to your values, um, your your political views, whilst also being, well, without de dehumanizing, sorry, without dehumanizing the person Absolutely. on the other side of the debate. Or closer to the home about Scottish independence, yeah. for example. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Hadn't Indeed. thought. Yes, of course, I'll get in trouble with my Scottish counterparts, but I hadn't. <laughs> that is, I mean, because I mean, in terms of Scotland, yes, that is, you know, society is mm. very polarised in relation mm. to that issue, certainly, no question. Well, I think part of that is is very much is, is about what we do as social workers. We're not neutral. I'm not a neutral person. I have very strong views about some things. But part of my professionalism is to recognise, acknowledge what that means and how that may be expressed. And that some of that way is it comes out, it's really important. You know, when you work in these kind of areas that you have good support, that you reflect, that you have sound supervision to actually kind of highlight those kind of issues. But it, without you have to have that kind of foresight and insight, I think, into your own views and behaviours to make sense of this. But we're willing to accept those alternative narratives as well and how they inform you in that kind of way. Janet, thank you. That's really, really helpful. Jim, in your book, International Perspectives in Social Work and Political Conflict, which I'm holding up for the camera, which uh, <laughs> Ray, Ray has a contributed chapter to, um, that was co-edited with uh, the wonderful Joe Duffy from Queen's uh, University and Carol Tassoon uh, from New York University. Isn't that right, Jim? That's that right. right. Yes. Um, in that book, you write that social work practices can be stymied and frustrated by political conflict, yet social workers can find imaginative and empowering opportunities despite the violence and social disjunctures. I want to look at that for a second. In what ways have you seen social workers in Northern Ireland adapt to deliver services amidst the chaos of the conflict? Thanks, Andy. And yeah, the book was um, the first of its type, really. Um, to our, The origins of the book was, was a study, one of the first studies about how um, social workers try to deal with the conflict in Northern Ireland. And again, we're indebted to Joe Duffy, who's Professor of Social Work at Queen's University Belfast for leading the study. Thanks, Joe. So in the book, we talk about um, just the, the problems associated with the conflict in Northern Ireland uh, since 1969, 
over 3,700 people have died, many thousands physically, uh, emotionally, psychologically uh, damaged and affected. Um, so social workers had to try and deal with many of the problems of a society which was really disintegrating in the early period of that those troubles, and they trying to find they trying to they tried to like other professionals try to find ways of dealing with the needs of victims and survivors of the conflict, and of course that 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 brings with it many dangers, uh, many traumas. They were dealing with bombs, sectarian violence, shooting, shootings, traffic disruption. And to be truthful, we really don't know the levels and degrees of the traumas that the social workers experienced. It's hard unless we do another study, we find out in a more meaningful, more general way about what happened to those social workers in the early period. We, we, it's hard to know how that impacted upon them. We will talk about this issue later on in our discussion. But having said that, what we find from those interviews with these, these social workers who were working across a range of different uh, client groups was that they really were getting into dangerous situations and they were accepting the normal. Uh, the, the abnormal is normal. As we say in a paper that we wrote, um, they just got on with it. Jim, can I just interject? I think you did that even in, in, in your in your answer to the question. You talked about traffic disruption. I think what you probably mean is paramilitary roadblocks that social workers were having to navigate around. That is a perfect example of normalising something which exactly. anywhere else mm-hmm. in the UK would be completely abnormal. And not just um, obviously the the state forces or you know the security forces were stopping the traffic as well, and we sometimes think of the conflict and the traumas around the anti-state forces, but there were also incidences and problems around how um, security forces dealt with issues, and that impacted upon the social workers as well. So yeah, they weren't just traffic. Disruption caused by the snow outside. There were roadblocks, routine roadblocks, heavily armed roadblocks, both by paramilitaries and security forces. Yeah, my, I mean, my my colleague will talk about being let through those. You know, it's the welfare. That's what they said. You know, exactly. So that's how the social worker was understood. The welfare come on through. They used a, a number of techniques during that period, and even to today, they, there are still ways of managing low-level violence. But in those days, they used a number of coping techniques, um, help, they sought help through their peers, not so much through organisations. And um, they did find ways of doing the, nor- the, the normal and abnormal situations. You mentioned paramilitaries. Well, there are lots of accounts of social workers going to paramilitaries to be allowed in to their areas to carry out childcare or mental health statutory functions. So they were recognised as an important service. They got on with their job, but we really don't know, to be truthful, Mm. how traumatic that was for them. And that's something we need to really continue to consider. And I know Baswa, Northern Ireland, are very keen to continue that that sort of investigation or storyline. Thank you, Jim. And Ray, you also co-authored a chapter in the book that I mentioned. And in that chapter, you state that borders between personal, professional and political become mm. the thinnest and most porous in countries affected by political conflicts. And I think that's a really fascinating statement. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Yes, absolutely. And also to note that that chapter was conv- written by a one- with a wonderful colleague from University of Sarajevo in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Sanala Basic. 
um, who's a wonderful colleague of both Jim and mine, uh, with whom we work closely together. And um, yes, I think that there are many people who come to social work with lived experience of having a social worker, either themselves or their close family member or a friend having a social worker and this having an impact and shaping who they are. But extreme events such as political conflicts or natural disasters or COVID-19 pandemic, they are the things where your work isn't separate from your own personal experience. Uh, Much like we discussed at the beginning, who you are, your identity within one ethnic or several ethnic groups comes to the fore and impacts how you're perceived. Um, your, your, you can, you know, your house can be bombed just as much as anybody else's. Just because you work in particular service doesn't mean that you're protected and shielded in any way. Your family members might be dying or you might not know whether they're dead or alive. You may have sent off your children to stay with your family members or just put them onto a bus just to take get them to safety, not knowing where they are. All those things don't just happen to people who use services. They happen to social workers alike. And I think it's a unique experience in social work where that boundary between personal and professional is far more porous, if you'd like, because whatever is happening to people you work with can happen to you. You're not exempt. You're not going to work somewhere else so that you can have more distance and more professional distance from that experience. It's very much your own. And even if you feel that you can try and make a difference, other people will not allow you to because they will identify you in a particular way, much like Jim was describing a situation with Northern Ireland. So I think it makes it a very unique experience to explore as a social worker because it's not just professional issues that you're dealing with as a professional. You're also a human being who is part of that society and deeply affected by everything that's going on around you. And then Jim touched on this uh, and mentioned that it's, we we don't have figures uh, to kind of uh, illustrate this. A lot of it's anecdotal, but impacts on mental health. What, you know, mm. can we explore that a little bit? You know, if you are in practice, I mean, all social workers are dealing with challenging, difficult circumstances at the best mm. of times. But if you're dealing with those situations amidst uh, a political conflict and then you don't want to be coming home, I suppose, and offloading to your partner or your husband or your wife, do we know how social workers were coping, how they have coped? There are several things to say about that. Um, first is that whatever knowledge we have, if we're talking about, you know, beyond personal knowledge and personal experience um, or anecdotal uh, knowledge that we have from our colleagues, from our peers, from working in that period and so on and so forth. I think as a profession, we know very little about what political conflict means in different societies. The knowledge that we do have predominantly comes from Northern Ireland and Israel. And those are very specific contexts. And that means that our knowledge is quite fragmented and shaped by cultures within those two contexts as well and understandings. Second thing that I find fascinating on that kind of more um, broader and knowledge production level is that even if you just look for knowledge on social and political conflict, what you will most commonly, if you put in any search engine looking for writing on the topic, what will come up most often is PTSD and kind of medicalized understanding of distress caused by political conflict, which is actually quite a lot of part of my work. 
Okay. So there is a very particular lens that we b- bring to distress that we experienced during the war as professionals, as well as people who are members of the community, just how this impacts us. And on one hand, as was already mentioned, we normalize those experiences uh, and we kind of incorporate them into our daily lives and we kind of get accustomed to this very surreal and new world. Um, in the book, The Milkman, whose author's name just escapes me. Anna Burns, it's yes. a great book. Yeah. I love it. There is a, there is a mention, there is a, a murder uh, that happens. So it's set in Northern Ireland. If you, if anybody's listening and they haven't read The Milkman, they really, really need to. But there is a murder which is not linked to the troubles and everybody's kind of aghast and they can't understand it. And it's like, oh my goodness, how what? Awful. How? And there is murder. <laughs> so much violence and loss all around. But that non-conflict related violence is kind of shocking. So it's yes. a very surreal and warped reality you kind of enter into uh, and that you live with, which of course impacts us, but not necessarily all in the same way. There is a wonderful colleague in um, from uh, Lebanon, um, uh, Lamia Mogye, whose surname I might not be pronouncing quite correctly, who is doing a lot of work. She's a social worker, but she also works as a medical anthropologist. She's a kind of real interdisciplinary scholar. And she speaks of this lack of um, effect on mental health that is expected for people to have. And this, and it's not quite resilience either, uh, that is the right way to describe it. But she talks about how people aren't quite affected in this Western way of understanding what distress is and how people are affected. And that people are, after the conflict which occurred in that country, continued very much with their lives. Of course, social workers are affected. Of course, this was difficult, particularly there was, there was no supervision, very little to be restrained. But at the same time, we know very little about what actually happened and where we do explore it, we do it in a very medicalized way, which might not necessarily, I would argue, be the best way to do it. Yeah, I, I wanted Rhea to kind of really acknowledge with you that almost in the, the what I've been reading, the almost medicalization oh, gosh, yeah. of these yeah. issues of conflict yeah. and so on. And and I guess for me, that's where social work, and it's maybe easy and trite to say this, as a real role, because I do think we've been to the fore, that kind of social issue, mm. that kind of reality of people's narratives mm. and that kind of experience is what I would comment. Well, thanks, Janet. And I do think we need to be careful about um, just assuming the post-traumatic stress disorder um, category too easily, though the victims and survivors of the conflict don't necessarily want to be labelled or psychologised. Some do, some Mm. don't. But in terms of the earlier discussion, and echoing just what Ray and Janet have said, I worked as a mental health social worker during the 1980s for a while. And I look back in that period, and I wasn't involved in too many incidents, as some of my colleagues were in the cities and in the border regions. But Being neutral or being apolitical retrospectively wasn't a great idea because social work, like many others, didn't really address the issues or weren't part of the solution. But it is a protective way of looking after the self, a very understandable way of not putting your head above the parapet, of looking after your family. So there are lots of paradoxes in the social work role. And I just feel that we need to be sensitive to those situations where 
We expect too much of social workers if the politicians themselves don't really address the kernel of the problems. But I think, and we'll come to this shortly, hopefully Andy will take us to this, what can be done into the future. And in Northern Ireland, there are many more opportunities to look up look after ourselves, to understand mental health issues of practitioners and the relationships that we have uh, and the impact we have in working with victims and survivors of the conflict. It's very important what Jim said. I think it's important to acknowledge that for many people, having a diagnosis or labelling your experience and using that label such as PTSD or vicarious trauma, which is a different set of understanding, but kind of comes from also from particular context. It's very important to, and and they do embrace it, and it brings them a a sense of making sense of uh, their experiences. As as some colleagues actually rightfully pointed out to me, it also helped to make them, their distress more palpable to people around them, because there is more acceptance and understanding of PTSD. However, my question is, what is lost if we just, is it, is it enough? And does it apply to every experience of distress, particularly in a, in a, con, you know, in the, on a planet which has so many con- cultures, which understand the world around us and themselves so differently. And I would argue that there is a need to explore, are there other ways to understand it? And having done some work on that, <clears throat> unpacking kind of what makes people distressed with uh, colleagues in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, with a wonderful co-researcher called Khalida Vesakic, where we talk to people about what caused their distress. And at the core of it, yeah, people people do say, oh, I have PTSD, and they do embrace that label. On the other hand, when they talk about what, they, what happened to them, it's violence and it's experiences of violence and what impact that kind of really surreal experience that, and, uh, of injustice and killing and torture that happened to people how what impact this has had on them and what is a best way to cope with that and go into the future. Also, it's important, I think, very briefly to distinguish between what happens during a conflict and after the conflict, because I think during the conflict we are, which is very different again, you know, in, in, in Northern Ireland, we're talking about 30 years. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, we're talking about four or five. We are now in the second year of conflict in Ukraine, for example. There is no end. You don't know when it's going to end. And that's something to, you know, we can talk about historical events, knowing when they finished. But when it's happening to you, you don't know when and how it's going to stop and what's going to happen to you and your loved ones. But what happens in that long term after it finally stops is just as important. And people have very different ways of coping with the solidarity and communities coming together, which does happen in many communities during the conflict. And then the final unraveling afterwards, which doesn't really bring peace and justice and something that you were hoping would come as a next phase afterwards. And I think these issues are incredibly relevant, though, Mm. to social workers in the UK, Janet. I'm thinking, you know, of social workers that are supporting people seeking refuge um, Mm. from conflicts around the world, whether they are Ukrainians who are seeking refuge in the UK or people from Syria and other countries who are forced to travel via you know, deeply unsafe routes because government isn't assisting them in the same way as they're assisting people from white European countries. That's the context social workers are dealing with, supporting those individuals. Do you, um, do you feel social workers are equipped? Do they have the skills to, to, to essentially 
support people address that trauma they've experienced that Jim and, and Ray have been talking about? I think probably in principle they are there, but whether we actually link those kind of ideas and issues together. So I wouldn't like to say that social workers aren't empathic or able to communicate or use counselling skills and so on, but th those narratives run really, really deep uh, as both Jim and Rhea, I mean, have uh, expressed. I'm sorry this is a personal thing. My mum was born and brought up in Germany in the Second World War. And even up to very, before she died, she was called that woman from Germany. It was so, and for her, that history pervaded her life and everything that she did. So it's that kind of understanding of how deep it runs is really important. I do think we need to help social workers much more. I don't think so in, in making sense of this and understanding if you can ever make sense of it, but but we have to understand the complexity of it. And I think it does help us by looking at these narratives and these histories and these experiences and work in our direct work currently, both with refugees, but with, our, with also our service users and with communities and what that means, because particularly in the countries we we're not just talking about individuals we're working with but we've got command of community groups now of people who are refugees and so on so we need to make sense of that so i think yes we need to do more to help social workers understand these issues okay so moving on i want to talk about the current day but i think it would also be useful to briefly reflect in terms of social work in bosnia herzegovina during the war, in the aftermath, and today. One of the issues you touched on at the start, Rea, was the sort of administrative carve-up of um, Bosnia-Herzegovina in uh, the aftermath of the conflict. I think that was the Dayton Peace Accords that brought that about. Yes. We could probably talk for several hours about that. It's incredibly complicated. Yeah. I know that's causing specific issues in the current day, but if mm. we could do that briefly, can I jump it back? Issues during the war, in terms of social workers being able to support service users, post-conflict and now up into 2023. Um, give us a couple of minutes on on, on that. <laughs> I'll do my best. Thanks. Uh, so one thing which is important to mention, because I don't think people might be aware of it, unlike many socialist countries in Europe and in other parts of the world, it, which were kind of became socialist following World War II, we had social work because we were part of the, we initiators of non-allied movements. So we weren't behind the Iron Curtain. There was an acknowledgement of degree of social issues that were happening in the post-war period. And social work immersion was formed both in practice and education throughout the post-war period from 50s onwards. And social work is was mainly organized throughout the country through local um, so the country was organized and still is that it has kind of local community level for about 60,000 people moving upwards to kind of more regional organization and then kind of national or uh, um, uh, republics were then very important. And there were, for example, republic level and then city level for bigger towns, uh, 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 centers for social welfare and centers for social work. And those centers for social work, people would either have generic practice and have a particular caption, um, geographic area that they worked in, or they worked in specialist teams. In the post-war period, a particular immediately after World War II, 
there was focus on children without parental care, which of course also emerged as a major kind of service user group after the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 1990s too. Um, so there were specialist teams later on in centres for social work, which were staffed by social workers, so- sociologists, and uh, as well as uh, lawyers and administrative teams focusing both on material benefits, so kind of, you know, uh, um, cash support for people um, uh, as one of the mechanisms both to support both full employment and ensure social welfare. But it was a crucial component of public service of offering either specialist teamwork, uh, also dealing with divorce cases, for example, as well, and kind of looking at children's and, and uh rights in that context, as well as specialising, for example, on the working with people who misuse substances and so on and so forth. That is how, and also importantly, because we had a lot of industry, there were social workers working also in the industry. So uh, because we had a strive for full employment, there were a range of people who either became disabled on, in the workplace or were disabled but employed. So there were a lot of social workers working there as well. That is how the system was when the war started and it kind of continued apart from all the employment opportunities, those big factories and so on started to shut down. And a very good colleague of mine, Yasmina Selimovic from Tuzla, which is a major industrial, uh, post-industrial now area in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina um, uh, and a wonderful part of, uh, if you ever do wonderful place to visit also in Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, it, she worked a lot during the war, helping people to retire if they could because of disab- disability rights that they accrued just in the kind of uh, as the way war was breaking breaking out, and that was the system which was in place. And I think that I misunderstood that function which looked at poverty alleviation quite a lot when I was younger. And I really appreciate, particularly in a present day context and working in the UK, how much work actually, how professional a function it is, and how much actually that poverty alleviation measures matter because they still those centres still exist, and social work is implemented through centres for social work primarily. One thing that emerged out of the war, because it's important to say also that social work can evolve and change and services can improve. If we look at, for example, example uh, what happened with mental health services in UK uh, in the following, uh, following World War I and the impact of understanding shell shock mm. as, and, and its impact that led and how it led to transformation of mental health services in this country, Similar has happened in Bosnia-Herzegovina. I mean, one way to initiate a reform, which also was uh, of services, which were also based on institutionalized care as well, in parallel to centers for social work, is um, lots of long-stay hospitals in Bosnia were bombed. People fortunately weren't in them when that happened, by and large. Uh, And after the war, uh, Italian colleagues uh, from uh, World Health Organization helped initiate the reform of mental health services. So in primary healthcare centers, which existed also alongside centers for social work, uh, also catering uh, GP type services for population of roughly, roughly 60,000 uh, people in a geographical catchment area. Centers for mental health were, uh, community mental health were attached there staffed by a psychologist, a, a psychiatrist, four nurses, and half a social worker shared with a uh, uh, centre for social work. So that kind of, that is, system still exists and it's built on 
patched up and built on and innovated in, in the post-war period. Um, what complicates it is that in Bosnia, you don't have, there is no responsibility for social welfare on country level. There are two entities, Republika Srpska and Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Those two entities have their own legislation for social welfare. And then one of those entities, uh, Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, is split up into two, uh, uh, two uh, cantons, Swiss-style cantons, each of which has their own legislation for social welfare. And then in parallel to all of that, they couldn't understand what's going to happen during the Dayton Peace Accords. That's why I'm saying the country is divided and uh, united in many ways. Um, there is also US-type district, Birchko, because there they couldn't decide what was going to happen. So district Birchko also has its own legislation and governance structures in place. So it's a very complex, if you want to initiate countrywide reform, you have to negotiate 13 layers of governance. 13 layers, that's that's something else. Andrea, thank you for explaining all that. I'm going to say I had a blind spot from reading about um, the development of social work in post-Soviet countries. Mm. I had just, I mean, I, I recognise that Yugoslavia had different standing to the Soviet Union, certainly, but I had mm. just in my ignorance presumed that social work uh, mm. was new. Um, so thank you for clearing that up. Jim, if we can finish by talking about social workers practicing in Northern Ireland in 2023, we are a post-conflict society, but there is still a massive legacy of that conflict and how it affects people. We are still in many ways deeply, deeply divided. Just one little example, when um, Rhea was talking about the Milkman book, that book, if you don't know Belfast, you don't know that it's set in North Belfast. I used to live in North Belfast. I know exactly where it's supposed to be. And that is an area of patchwork, um, you know, uh, nationalist communities, unionist communities. We are still deeply, deeply divided um, in terms of kids going to school um, and, and many cultural and other identity issues. What's it like, Jim, practicing in in Northern Ireland in twenty twenty three? Okay, I I can only reflect as an academic on what I've read about and speaking to social workers through the studies that we've done. Um, yeah, the Milkman's a wonderful book. Um, you need to get used to the idea of a stream of consciousness, and maybe that's the way we are in Ireland. There are lots of there's a long history of. From Joyce to Beckett. I'm, I'm reading Portrait of the Artist at the at the moment, and oh, yeah, I'm struggling. It's an easy oh, wait, one. well, I well, I've read a lot of I've read a lot of William Faulkner, and uh, and found yeah. it very very difficult. We're the same. South Slavs are the same stream. Of, if you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm yes, a, I'm a third the way through Ulysses. That's yes. another story. Anyway, just in reflecting upon um, what's happened since uh, Belfast Agreement, I think the Belfast Agreement despite its weaknesses and the issues that that flowed from the Belfast Agreement, the fact that we don't have a, a consistent political system in place, I, w- I think it's fair to say there's some optimism about the space that the Belfast Agreement, the peace building, has delivered for the people of Northern Ireland and its communities. And there is definitely a place for social work to play um, because I think the universities are training and educating social workers to be more understanding of the needs of victims and survivors. I think agencies are now more aware of those issues. There's more post-qualifying training in Northern Ireland in areas of systems theory in terms of cognitive behavioural ideas that social workers are using to to be better skilled to understand the needs of these communities. Mm. So Despite the problems that we have, it's ongoing sectarian 
division. We are still a divided society. Social workers still, like many citizens, have fears and fears about what they're experiencing and what they their fears about the future. There's optimism that the profession actually does have quite an important role to play because they do understand, I think, maybe it's controversial, communities, individuals and families and the complexities of systems better than other than other professionals in this field. So I would be optimistic. I think Baz was positioning on this is very positive in Northern Ireland. And I think there's there's definitely something good to be said about how we can go and take the profession into the future in this particular situation of political conflict. But also we need to learn from others, such as Raymond and other colleagues who we're working with, to understand, can we learn from other contexts as well? We don't certainly don't know everything in Northern Ireland about political conflict. In Bosnia, one thing that's happening in parallel to all of this is that there is this fragmentation, much like Northern Ireland. Uh, just to echo what Jim is saying, there is four degrees now offered in Mostar, in the Croatian side, kind of um, in Banja Luka, and now in Tuzla. There are additional degrees in parallel to the Sarajevo to train to become a social worker. But more so, much earlier on, in right throughout primary and secondary education, you have divided educational systems for the three main ethnic groups and the rights of others, for example, Roma or Jewish communities that also have lived traditionally in Bosnia and Herzegovina are ignored and don't have any access to governance roles that are embedded in the system post-Dayton Peace Accords. So you have generations growing up on three versions of history, three versions of geography, and it's breeding kind of lack of understanding. On the other hand, when we kind of travel around the country and talk to the people, one thing that has been really good to hear over the past year is that there is some acknowledgement. We know what we have done too, that there is an acknowledgement that all three sides have committed crimes against the other. Not, it's difficult to compare numbers. And one of the difficulties with any conflict is who gets to count the dead and who gets to talk about the conflict and who gets to have a say about the conflict. So there are many complex issues, but the important thing there is to really engage with people from context and bring them to the table, because also frequently people who are not part of the conflict are brought in to be impartial. But it's really important to facilitate that local knowledge to have a chance to talk on its own terms in a safe way and try to create a more international understanding of what conflicts are across the globe. As social workers, I think we're more than aware that life is morally complicated. And I think our discussion today has really kind of proved that and that people do behave in quite despicable ways and that some things can never be explained. And I want to kind of acknowledge that obviously there is conflict going on now and that's important. We acknowledge and recognise some of the trauma of that. And it's impossible not to be affected by what we see and the consequences for all, really. But And it's not easy to forgive and forget. And humanising the other is really difficult. It's multi-layered as well. But as social workers, we're and as social workers, we're often viewed as excusing, rewarding, and humanising those who are defined as the other. But I just wanted to reinforce that as social workers, I think we have got a critical role to play. 
both from our professional identity and our knowledge and skills of social workers and our concerns for right and justice in highlighting these critical roles and responsibilities in undertaking what we might call a humanitarian role in supporting vulnerable people and citizens in conflict. Thank you, Janet. As I stated at the beginning of this episode, social work is practised in situations of armed conflict across the world. And today we've discussed two examples. But what I want to do now is draw this episode to a close with a moment of solidarity to acknowledge all those social workers who practice in areas of armed conflict. I hope you'll stay with us for this time. Jim, Rhea, Janet, thank you so much for being part of this episode of Let's Talk Social Work and to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.